So, the reading question was, what was the significance of the centrifugal term? Actual student answer, the centrifugal term acts to push the particle away from the origin. Uh, some questions people had. The most interesting and most confusing topic of section 4.1 was the spherical vessel and Neumann functions. Are these purely mathematically derived series like the genre polynomials, or did they result from experiments somehow, or, and if so, how did they arrive at these equations? So, um, if you were lucky enough to live in the 1700s or the 1800s, and you were the first one to solve a differential equation, you got to put your name on it, be a special function. So these were some guys who solved some equations. Um, they pop up lots of times in physics, whenever, usually when you have spherical symmetry. But we're not, I mean, they're just like any other special function. So there's nothing particularly interesting about them. Um, but if you're asking, have they been tested? There are lots of places where they pop up and they've been experiments have been done to check them. I mean, classical physics works and quantum physics works, so. Uh, another one, footnote 10. The coefficient b is chosen to be zero since the term it attached to goes to infinity. But the footnote says finiteness is not the requirement. Being normalizable is the requirement. Is this because you can't normalize a function that blows up within the bounds of the integral, assuming L2 space? So, I mean, <clears throat> the physical requirement is that the wave function is supposed to tell us the probability after we square it and integrate over some volume. So if we can integrate over the entire space and the wave function squared is finite, that means we can normalize it to one. That means it makes sense as a probability can't normalize it to one, then it won't make sense as a probability, so you can't use it as a probability. Amplitude. So usually when functions blow up in simple examples, you check and the wave function's not normalizable. In this particular case, because it's r squared dr, you get to blow up a little bit, but not too much. So the, the real check is whether you can normalize the wave function. At the very bottom of page 137, I don't understand what Griffiths means by a statement about the number of solutions that exist. Yes, we should have two linearly independent solutions for a second-order differential equation, but even with this explanation, I don't see what the solutions are. I mean, the angular wave functions seem to be linearly independent for each L and M, so there are tons of them, so we just get to make the general solution of some of these that match the boundary conditions. I don't see how we're missing other solutions like he says. Basically, I did not understand what he means from, but wait, where are all the other solutions? On to the end of the paragraph, and it's on the next page. So he gives a couple of pages later, later in one of the problems, he gives an example of one of these other functions. So second order differential equations have two solutions. You impose boundary conditions, usually to get a unique answer. And uh, what I think one of his examples is log tan theta. It doesn't sound very nice because it blows up when theta is zero. You have to check it's normalizable. Probably not. If it is, then uh, you can write a brilliant research paper. So probably not normalizable. Um, so second order differential equations have two solutions. And we get unique solutions by imposing the boundary conditions. We should, L and M, 
those quantum numbers are equivalent to some boundary conditions that we're imposing. So we should get a unique solution when we impose L and M, but before we impose that, that it's normalizable as part of the boundary condition, we should have two solutions. That's why there's spherical harmonics and the other functions that you never hear of. But we don't care about those other ones that you never hear of. So we won't hear of them anymore. Any other questions? How many people couldn't see the first reading question? Okay. So this is a mystery. Smart site, you asked it at the wrong time of day. Uh, okay, where were we? Last time we were trying to solve the Schrodinger equation in uh, three dimensions. And we were so excited to get to spherical harmonics that I forgot to show you the movie. So here's a simulation of our particle in a box. So what's going on is you measure the position of the particle over and over again hundreds of times. It's about 500 times there. And you get, by doing that, each time you measure it, it's at some particular place. But by sampling it over and over again, you get an idea of what the probability distribution is, or the square of the wave function. So staring at this, you can see where the edges of the box are. So what are the quantum numbers of the state? your answer? LX is 2, LY is 1, those of these 3. Sounds good. Or you could interchange X and Y. Everyone see why it's 1, 2, 3 or 2, 1, 3? So there's, going vertically, there's 1, 2, 3 bumps. So we know that one's 3. Going this way, there's 2 bumps. And then going, uh, it's lined up properly this way, there's just 1 bump. So there should be a 1, a 2, and a 3 in quantum numbers. So we're going to use these same things when we try to visualize uh, hydrogen atoms. So if you have questions, now's a good time. So this thing is spinning? Yeah, we're, the camera is rotating around the box so we can see it from different angles. Otherwise, it would be hard to pick out this 2 and 1 simultaneously. You need to look at two different directions. What did you say the quantum numbers are again? One, two, three. One, two, three. Or two, one, three. <coughs> Assuming this is Z. So everyone sees why they're one, two, three? Everyone happy? Okay. So last time we got to uh, separate variables, we picked out term, there was one term that only depended on phi, so we got to say that that was a constant and solve that equation. We wanted periodic solutions, so we said the constant was negative, just like we did in the box. And then the solutions are sines and cosines, which we chose to write as exponentials. And supposing that it's periodic, when we go all the way around 2 pi, uh, we know that this constant is quantized terms of an integer m. So, that's it.
you've read ahead, you know the answer now. So, M is a quantum number of something. So, let's figure it out. It's e to the i m phi. So it would be interesting to know what d by d phi does. So I'm going to write d by d phi in another way that makes it obvious what it does. So we'll write it in terms of Cartesian coordinates. So we can write dx d phi d by dx and plus dy d phi d by dy plus dz d phi d by dz. And we know what x, y, and z are in terms of theta and phi. x was r sine theta cos phi. So if we take a derivative, we'll get minus r sine theta sine phi. And y was uh, r sine sine, so we'll get r sine cos phi. And z was r cos theta. So we get zero. And now this thing over here is minus y. And this guy over here is x. So it's starting to look like something uh, we know. If we multiply by h bar over i. see what it's going to be now. <coughs> h bar over i d by dy is the momentum operator in the y direction. Sometimes people put a little hat on top of uh, the thing to tell you that it's an operator, not just a classical number. But uh, lots of times we won't. And this guy over here is the momentum in the x direction. Now we're sure we know what it is. It's the angular momentum in the z direction. Because angular momentum is r cross p. So lz is <coughs> xpy minus ypx. So this equation that we solved, second derivative of the function capital phi with respect to phi, second derivative, was minus m squared capital phi. That's another way of writing the operator LZ squared acting on capital phi gives m squared h bar squared phi. And if we act with LZ directly, since it's e to the i m phi, we'll bring down uh, an i m. So that's d by d phi, e to the i m phi, which is m h bar phi. So this function phi is an eigenfunction of the angular momentum in the z direction, and it has an eigenvalue m h bar. So m is the quantum number for the z component of angular momentum. And it has a stupid name, as in Luthul. Horrible. 
So, yep. I'll just call them L and M. I hate those names. Am I off the page here? Did you guys see what I was doing? So, this phi is an eigenfunction of angular momentum in the z direction. It has an eigenvalue mh bar. <coughs> and what about the other angular junk that we had back in our equation? So, remember what it was? We had a 1 over sine theta d by d theta of sine theta d by d theta plus 1 over sine squared theta d squared d phi squared. So if we multiply that by a minus h bar squared, what we're going to see later on, so we're going to have a taste of spherical harmonics, then we're going to solve the hydrogen atom because we're following Griffiths, and then he's going to come back to angular momentum even though we already solved the eigenfunctions of angular momentum now. So what we're going to show later is if you calculate Lx squared plus Ly squared plus Lz squared, which is just L squared, it's equal to this mass that appears in our equation. Can yep. So these spherical harmonics are the eigenfunctions of the angular momentum operators, or at least L squared and LZ. So that's that's why we're getting, getting them here. Okay, back to solving our Schrodinger equation. So now that we know what the function phi is, we still have the radial derivative term and this piece with theta derivatives acting on capital theta. And for the phi term, we can put in that we're using the eigenvalue since we're using the eigen it's acting on the eigenfunction so we'll we'll take we'll look at solutions where phi is the eigenfunction so we can put in minus m squared there <coughs> and then we have the energy minus the potential energy on the other side of the equation so now that we figured out the phi dependence. We have a term, one term that depends on theta, one term, and the other terms only depend on r. So this thing here must be a constant. So we'll write 1 over sine squared theta d by d theta sine theta d capital theta d theta 
minus m squared over sine squared theta theta equals some constant times the function theta. <coughs> and then, since we know the answer, the constant is going to be chosen to be L minus L times L plus 1. Minus because, again, we want periodic solutions. And L times L plus 1 because after we figure out angular momentum, that will make sense. This will be the other quantum number of angular momentum that goes with the M. But for right now, it's just uh, uh, because Griffiths knows the answer. So it's better to use that now to get used to it. So the solutions of this equation were worked out by uh, some old dead guys. So this is the associated Legendre function. So it's called PLM of cos theta. And you can write them out. You have 1 minus x squared to the absolute value of m over 2, and d by dx to the absolute value m power acting on the Legendre polynomial. So I notice a lot of these special functions were named after French people because they happen to be more interested in solving differential equations than your average person. I guess Napoleon gave some money for mathematicians to solve differential equations. Hmm? I think the first one, but the, the third one? I thought the first Napoleon did everything and then everyone just followed on, I believe. But I'm not an expert on history. So there's this uh, <coughs> Rodriguez formula. So these we have solutions when L is 0, 1, 2, dot, dot, dot. So L has to be a positive semi-definite integer. So I used to make the students uh, do this, one of the problems. You work out the using that Rodriguez formula, the wave functions in hydrogen for some L equals 10 or something. It's supposed to be good practice, but every year the students said, oh, it's so painful. So I'm not going to make you guys do that. But if you really want to understand the hydrogen atom, you should do that problem. So think I have some pictures so maybe I should write it 
let's write out the functions first. So we can have solutions for different values of L and M. And M has to be less than or equal to L. It's absolute value because of our previous formula, if we differentiating too many, we have lots of derivatives here, m of them, so if we have a polynomial of order l and we take more than l derivatives, we'll get zero. So m can't be bigger than l. So l can be zero, m can be zero, if l is one, then m can be zero or plus or minus one. If L is 2, we can have M can be 0 plus or minus 1 plus or minus 2. And if you plug into those formulas, the lowest guy is just a constant for 0, 0. Then we get cosines and sines. get second-order polynomials and cosines and sines. I started to I offset. Oops. So what did these things look like? So the first one, so what do these plots mean? This axis is the z-axis. <coughs> this axis can be x or y. It's only a function of cos theta. So you can imagine rotating around this. So we take, uh, we pick a particular theta, and go out to some distance. The distance is determined by the function. In this case, it's the L equals zero, M equals zero, which is just a constant. So we just get a circle in that case. So that means it's equally likely to be at any angle. Easy. When L equals one, there were two solutions, cosine and sine. So for the cosine, measuring the angle from the z-axis, so cosine of zero is one, so that's the maximum probability. And as we move the angle down, cosine gets smaller and smaller and smaller until at 90 degrees it's zero. And then it goes around, comes back. So then for this state, L equals one, M equals zero, the most likely direction is state equals zero or and then for L equals 1, M equals 1, it's a sign. So up here, we start at 0, and then as the angle gets larger, this function increases. So the most likely angle is in the plane here, 90 degrees, if it was a wave function. It's going to be. Then we get to L equals 2, we start getting fancy functions. 
clear what's going on. Here, the matching probability is still fading to zero, but then there's a little a smaller bump when beta is pi over two. Here, it likes to be at the 45 degrees. And here, it likes to be at 90 degrees. Are there any questions about these? Solve the hydrogen atom. We'll see these again. So, like, any central force with some probability density Yeah, as long as the potential just depends on the distance from the origin. And this is assuming that the, we've got things in angular momentum eigenstates. So, I couldn't go out and like, do astrophysics and actually look for. Well, um, it, the the electrons in the clouds that are the electrons going around the nuclei are in this. But if you want a macroscopic system to be in a quantum state, that's not very easy to arrange. As that's why we don't understand quantum mechanics because we're macroscopic and. We don't act like a quantum mechanical. So, switch back here. So, L can be any positive semi definite integer, so 0, 1, 2, 3. M can be 0, plus or minus 1, plus or minus 2, up to plus or minus L. So we're going to combine our two functions, capital theta and capital phi, and give it the pretty name YLM, which is a function of theta and phi. <coughs> it's really a phi. So it'll be some normalization constant times the PLM of cos theta, and the phi function was e to the i m phi. And we want to normalize it. So remember our volume element is r squared sine theta theta d phi. So what we want is that the wave function squared over three-dimensional space, integrated over the three-dimensional space should be one. So that's going to be this radial function. <coughs> capital R is the only thing that depends on little r, the distance from the origin. So we'll bring, keep the r dependence in that integral. And then the theta dependence is just in the YLM. And we want that whole thing to be normalized to 1. So the convenient thing to do is to set each of these integrals equal to 1. And then when you multiply them, 1 times 1 is still 1, so it works. 
But if you want to be wild and crazy, you could normalize this one to be pi and this one to be 1 over pi if you really, really wanted to. But it would just confuse everyone. But uh, it's up to you. <coughs> so, if I'm a little more explicit here, we have to integrate phi from 0 to 2 pi and theta from 0 to pi. Because we measured theta from the z-axis, so we can only go down to minus z, and we've covered the whole thing. So YLM is an eigenfunction. L squared, which is LX squared plus LY squared plus LZ squared, and LZ, which we're going we're gonna to prove to ourselves in great detail at a later date. So what are, we know what the eigenvalue of LZ is, and we know, I promise you that L squared this crazy thing we saw. So if we act on that, on our eigenfunction with L squared, There's a normalization factor A that comes out. And the first term only has theta derivatives, so the phi part goes through. The second term theta function doesn't have any phi dependence, so that comes out. And we know that d phi squared gives us m squared acting on function phi. And then we define this to be minus l times l plus 1. acting on theta. squared L times L plus 1 YLM. So the eigenvalues of L squared are this H bar squared L times L plus 1. So the reason it's L times L plus 1 was because of this equation that gave the associated Legendre polynomial. 
so you, life would be seem simpler if it was just L squared, but then it wouldn't be quantum mechanics. Questions about the spherical harmonics? Yeah. Sorry, I didn't get what you just said about the L times L plus one. What was the solution? Um, so the operator is L squared. So naively, you'd think that there's some L that's the eigenvalue of L, and then you'd write the eigenvalue of L squared as L squared. But you can't get L times L plus 1, not, not something squared. So you get it, quantum numbers are, in, are integers, but you don't, L squared is not the square of an integer. It's an integer times an integer plus 1. So it's just, it's just interesting that it doesn't work out. It's another thing in quantum mechanics that doesn't work out the way you naively think it should work out. But so what, I guess. Nothing works out the way you naively think it should work out in quantum mechanics. Okay. I made a mess here. So now we just have to solve the radial equation. Plugging in our spherical harmonics, we're just left with terms that are functions of R. And then to make things uh, pretty, we're going to change variables. We'll introduce a function U of R, which is R times capital R. So d but dr by d little r is minus u over r squared. So derivative acting on the one over r, and then a one over r derivative acting on u. So we can combine those terms like that. That means d by dr. This funny term up here, acting on r squared, d capital R, dr, is really the same as d by dr acting on, so the r squared cancels this 1 over r squared. And so when the derivative hits the first r, we just get du dr, and the derivative can act on du dr, so we get the second derivative of u, and then it can act on this u, so we get minus du dr, and now you know why we changed variables to u, the first derivatives drop out. <coughs> so we can write our radial equation like this. 
plugging in what R is in terms of U. And then we can make it look like a one-dimensional Schrodinger equation. So if we multiply by h-bar squared and divide by twice the mass, first term looks like p squared over 2m in a one-dimensional Schrodinger equation. Then there's minus a potential term, looks like one dimension. And then the effective, the only effective three dimensions is that there's this angular momentum term, which is uh, also called the centrifugal barrier or the centrifugal potential. So it comes with a 1 over r squared and it comes with the eigenvalue of l squared. So the 1 over r squared tells you that it's important when you're close to the origin. When r is small, this is the biggest term. Or at least it's probably much bigger than its potential because uh, potentials that, like a Coulomb potential is 1 over r. And that's the most divergent potential we usually have to deal with. So this, is, this centrifugal term is, determines what's going on near the origin. And if L is not equal to zero, then you won't be able to get close to the origin. It alone, this term only vanishes when L is zero. So unless you're in, in an L equals zero state, you won't be able to probe what's going on at the center. So this is equivalent to a 1D Schrodinger potential, or Schrodinger equation, with an effective potential that includes this centrifugal term. So the effective potential is the ordinary potential plus this extra term. So the bigger L is, the more the wave function will be suppressed at the center. If we take our normalization condition, we decided that uh, the radial part is separately normalized to 1. And that means this function u is normalized just like a 1D wave function. So as long as we stick to potentials that are only functions of the distance from the origin, we've already solved all the angular stuff with historical harmonics, and we only have to worry about a 1D Schrodinger equation, which you guys already mastered last quarter. So, we're set. Now we have 10 minutes to do an infinite spherical well. Challenging. It's challenging to get the center to the screen.
so just like our infinite box, infinite uh, well, which was a box, we'll choose a potential that's zero if we're inside some radius, and infinity if we're outside that radius. So inside the Schrodinger equation, the radial part just has our centrifugal term with the angular momentum squared appearing. And we're going to rewrite that like this. We'll take the angular momentum term to the other side and we'll multiply through by 2m over minus h bar squared and we'll call that thing the constant term k squared. So k is the square root of 2 mu twice the mass times the energy over h bar square root. And to make life simple we'll look at L equals 0 because then we don't have to worry about this centrifugal term. So then we get an equation that we know how to solve because we solved it for the box. So the solutions, since k squared is negative or has a minus sign out front, the solutions are sines and cosines. And the probability was r squared, which is u over r squared. So this cosine term blows up. And then you have to check whether it's normalizable. And it's not. So that tells us that b equals 0. So our wave function has to be just a constant times sine kr. And we have a boundary condition. The wave function should be continuous at the boundary of our spherical box. So sine <laughs> ka equals 0. So ka has to be an integer times pi. So the energy is quantized in terms of this integer n. And I put a subscript 0 to indicate that L equals 0 here. So we can solve for the energy in terms of k. And we know k in terms of the quantum number. And n has to be 1, 2, 3, because if it was 0, then the wave function would vanish. And if we, pro if we uh, properly normalize our wave function, <coughs> then you can do that integral. It has to be, capital A has to be root 2 over root A. And y0, 0, 
can look up in a table is 1 over square root of 4 pi. <coughs> So we have a wave function for arbitrary n and l equals 0, m equals 0. And there's a 1 over r factor when we go back to the three-dimensional form. So there's three quantum numbers, n, l, and m, but the energy only depends on n and l. Any questions about the L equals zero case? Was because we took L equals zero, it was as easy as doing the the square box. <coughs> now we'll do the hard part. So for arbitrary L not equal to zero, um, you need to solve that differential equation, including the one over R squared term. Unfortunately, some, some other guys solved that one, too. That's a good thing about quantum mechanics. There's lots of, uh, at least when you do the, the first year of quantum mechanics, all the problems have nice solutions that someone else worked out. So there's spherical Bessel functions. R times spherical Bessel functions. So this one's called the spherical Bessel, and this one's called the spherical Neumann. And this one blows up at r equals zero. So We'll set its coefficient to zero and forget about Neumann. So we just have a constant times r times a spherical Bessel function. And we have to impose a boundary condition. Still, the wave function still has to be continuous at the boundary of our sphere. Uh, this doesn't actually have a nice solution. You just have to numerically calculate where that function goes through zero. It has lots of zeros because it's oscillating, so you can pick one of them. So for some value of k, you can choose that. So BNL is the nth zero of the elf spherical Bessel function. So you have to feel sad for these old guys because they didn't have computers so they worked out with slide rules the function and tab made tables of all the zeros. So if you think uh, working out the 12th order Rodriguez formula is hard, get, get the hand, one of those mathematical handbooks with all the tables of the zeros of the Bessel functions. <coughs> Someone worked those out with a slide rule. Painful. But some people love it. Okay, not us. So our full wave function is 
some normalization constant times the spherical Bessel function times the YLM. And then for each L, M can be 0 plus or minus 1 up to plus or minus L. So if we count those, there's one guy corresponding to 0, and then there's L positive guys and L negative guys. So there's 1 plus 2L states with the same energy. So there's a 2L plus 1 2L plus 1 fold degeneracy. And if we really cared, then we'd have to put some perturbation in if we wanted to see the difference between these wave functions or between the energy levels. We'd put in some perturbation to split them all. But there's not many spherical, infinite spherical potentials lying around the lab, so we don't care that much. But we'll do things like that when we get to hydrogen. Is there any questions? So Friday, we'll do hydrogen. Friday, your first homework assignment's due. And please submit your quantum question by tonight if you want your extra 5% on the final exam, or at least a shot at it. There's still a few people who haven't done it. You know who you are. <laughs>